All righty. Can you hear me? All right. Excellent. Well, good morning. Um, I was just telling Stephen here a few minutes ago that this, this little topic that we're doing or this little exercise that we're doing on historical theology, I thought I would be able to cover this in one week, and I'm not even going to be able to finish it this week, so it's going to, it's going to go through three. Um, so we're going to have to, I guess, pick up some speed once we, once we get, done with, uh, get done with that. Um, so anyway, as, as y'all know, we're, we're going through a systematic theology class, but it's always good to kind of, I think, mix in historical theology and, uh, I almost said applied theology, um, historical theology and biblical theology. Uh, so what we're doing here is going through historical theology, specifically the doctrine of the person of Christ and seeing how that developed and was discovered over time. And I'm always very particular about the wording of that phrase because the doctrine of Christ wasn't, you know, what we believe about the person of Christ is not something that it comes out of the hum creative human mind. It's not a human invention in any way. It's something that is a truth that is, you know, a divine reality that comes from God himself. And human beings have, have discovered it. Uh, the church has discovered it by being led along by the Holy Spirit, okay? And so, you know, that's one of the things that we have to bear in mind is real theology, good theology, is not something that is created by man. It's something that is discovered by man uh, by, means of the, by means of the Holy Spirit, right? So let's pray, and then we'll, we're going to do a slight review, a short review and, um, of last week, and then we will get into... Um, Get into some new stuff, Father. Thank you for uh, thank you for this morning and the time we have to come together. Uh, there's a lot of folks out um, this 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 week for various reasons. Um, we just pray that everyone uh, you be with them and everyone stays safe, and uh, that you're glorified and somehow by um, everyone's uh, actions and thoughts and words. Um, Father, we love you. We trust you. Be with us as we uh, study. Um, study about your son today, and help us to glorify you in everything that we do. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Review. So from last week, we talked about uh, some, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inadequate views or heretical views of, of Christ, of the person of Christ. And so... One of them that we talked about was docetism. Does anybody remember what docetism was? Anybody? No? Oh, there we go. He wasn't really a man. So docetism uh, denies uh, Jesus' humanity. And basically, let's see if we, we can do, look at the, the basics of it here, from the Greek word to seem or to appear teaches that Jesus did not really enter creation as a man. He only seemed to be a man. He was, in fact, strictly a spiritual being, that is, God. Then there was Ebionism. You might remember what Ebionism was. Uh, not so much. Became God? Well, 
It's, Ebenezer denied that Jesus' deity and taught that he was the son of God by virtue of being, you're right, adopted by God. Yes, Jesus was a descendant of David, followed, um, followed the law perfectly, and was a gifted teacher, but, but that's it. So he wasn't really divine. He was um, adopted. And the reason I, I, I hesitated when you said that was I was thinking of adoptionism, um, which we're going to talk about here in a second, because the same word is used, but in two radically different ways. So my bad. Don't give me that look. I said my bad. So anyway, that was a joke. She's my wife. I can do that. Uh, Debianites rejected the epistles of Paul and only accepted uh, one gospel, Matthew. But even that, they revised the name, the gospel according to the Hebrews. So you see what they have to do to Scripture in order to um, either, well, one of two things. Either you have a belief and then you have to corrupt Scripture and limit Scripture in order to support that belief, pick and choose what it is that you, what you want, or you corrupt Scripture to begin with, you know, denying parts of um, what God has revealed to us, and then the, the, the consequence of that is that you have, you have heresy. And so that's what the, the Ebionites did. They... I think they did that second one. They limited, um, actually, I'm sorry, let, let me go back. So they came from essentially Jewish roots. And so they had this idea, they had expectations of what the Messiah was going to be. They thought that the Messiah was going to be what? What's the, the key phrase we keep using? A world ruler or a, war, a warrior king? Good, good. And... Um, and so what they got was something, you know, radically different than, than they expected. Um, yeah, Jesus is going to be a warrior king, but when he came the first time, he was, he, was more, he was the suffering servant, okay? And so that's one of the things that we tend to do as human beings is take God, God, the concepts of God, the mysteries of God, and then we, we dumb them down, we bring them down to our level so that there's something more than more like what we expect, okay? So the Ebionites also taught the necessity of keeping the, the Jewish law. Modalism. Remember, does anybody remember what modalism was? Remember the masks? Right. So, so essentially God is one person, not only one being, but God is one person, but he takes on different roles at different times. And so the analogy is that you have a, an actor that, you know, in a one-man play, and he's playing three different roles. And so as he's um, uh, fill, fulfilling each role, he puts on a different mask. And so those masks in, in God's world would be the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So modalism holds that God takes on different per personas or modes of different, um, at different times for different purposes or roles. It emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness. The difference between the Father and the Son is just name. It's like, um, it's like he just puts on a different mask at different times. Sibelius is the, the, the key player there. As a matter of fact, modalism is also called Sibelianism. All right, so now we get into dynamic monarchianism, which is also known as adoptionism. But in this way, adoption um, means something different than it did for the, the Ebionites. 
So dynamic monarchians get their name from the Greek word dynamos, uh, which means power. The position holds that Jesus was not actually God, but that he received power, the power of God. This position emphasizes the plurality at the expense of the oneness. You know, so far, um, we, we run into... So with Jesus, there are two, at least two, but we'll just talk about two mysteries um, that we have trouble reconciling. One is in his deity in regard to the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How is it that one being can be three persons? How is it that one God can be Father, Son, Holy Spirit? So you have what, what we refer to the term essence, or being. Um, one essence, three persons. Then what happens with uh, the person of Christ, specifically Christ, who participates in that trinity, um, you have the kind of the opposite problem, because he has two natures. He's not only God, he's not only divine, but he's also human. And so you have these, with, with Christ, you have sort of both, I'll call them problems, both problems. How can one being or essence be three persons? Then on the flip side, you have how can one person have two essences? And th those are the two big theological questions that, that people work through for, you know, five or six hundred years and to an extent are still working through today. So, um, but what happens is every time we have one of these heresies, on the Trinitarian side, it either emphasizes the three over the one or the one over the three, which you have to hold both as ultimate. Okay, God is ultimately both one being and three persons. Not one, one doesn't come before the other. And then on the human side, God is both, I'm sorry, Jesus is both, fully human and fully divine. And so the tendency there is to, um, in the beginning, was either to deny one over the other, but then as we're going to see today, it, came, it got into what's the relationship between them, between the um, fully human and fully divine. Does it make sense? Yeah? Cool. All right. So Theodotus, late second century, was the first person to espouse his position the power of God came upon Jesus at his baptism. This is how he performed miracles. Paul of Samosata um, said Jesus received a special blessing from God at his baptism. God gave Jesus some of his own attributes because God gave all of this power to Jesus. He was able to achieve moral perfection, and then God adopted him. So Jesus was a man who became a God, but he is not at the same level as the Father. We call this class of heresy adoptionism. Yes, sir? I don't think so. I think they. I, I think so. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't. I don't think they thought that anybody else could could do that. Um, and we're going to see Arius kind of take this to the next level, who was a disciple of a disciple of Paul, Paul of Samosata, and um, I think he develops it a little bit further. But but no, I don't think I don't think they would say that anybody else could could do it. All right. So new stuff. Arius, um, he really, you know, kind of, kind of really became a player in the early or early fourth century. So Arius trained under Lucian, who studied under Paul of Samosata, like we just talked about. Worth noting, and I mentioned this last week, Arius believed that if, uh, if man cannot understand something, then it cannot be true. 
Now that, that is something we have to keep in mind. Um, a lot of heresies really boil down to that. If, if I can't understand it, it can't be true. Or what they'll do is, um, what we'll do, what human beings tend to do is, and I keep using the word dumbed down, but take doctrines, take biblical truths and boil them down to something, reconcile them in such a way that they corrupt God's word, that they corrupt the truth that's revealed in scripture. Um, so Arius believe that God, being one and only one, could never share his being with anyone else. To do so would mean that there are two gods. So he believed that the eternal and unbegotten God created a son as a perfect creature. Arius believed that God created the universe and all that is in it through the son. So... Um, so before Genesis 1-1, God created the Son. S-O-N, not S-U-N, S-O-N. And then through the Son, he created everything else. Okay. So this is how Arius would interpret that Jesus was the firstborn of creation. And what is it, Colossians 1, 16 or 17? Where it talks about you know Jesus the firstborn of creation, this is how Arius would interpret that. That Jesus was created first, and then you know he was the firstborn of the rest of creation. And then he also um, this is also how the Son can be referred to as the only begotten. He alone uh, was brought into existence by by God alone. Okay. Um, So how easy would it be to fall into this? If, if somebody came to you, and maybe not now, but let's say that you're um, either a fairly new Christian, or, or maybe it is now, if you've never studied this particular thing, and they're a heretic, you know, and they, they came and they said, um, see, Jesus is the firstborn of creation. This means that he was born. This means that there was a time when he was not, which is exactly what Arius would say. How would you respond to that? What's that? Oh. Okay, cool. Good. No, that's good. That's good. So let's go, let's go where, you, where you said. Let's go ahead and develop that a little bit. I was trying to figure out if I wanted to do this today or not. I think we will. So we're going to turn to... The first thing we're going to do... See, we'll look at... Um, Look at only begotten. So let's turn to Psalm 2. This will throw us more off schedule, but that's okay. Psalm 2. We're going to start at the beginning. Um, punchline is verse 7, but you know, we, want, we want context. So why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords uh, from us. So here we have the anointed, which is Messiah. So it's talking about um, God placing his Messiah and the nations raging against him. 
Verse 4, he who sits in the, in, the, in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So he's talking about setting his king in Jerusalem um, to, to begin, to, um, to, begin to, to rule. Okay. And one thing to bear in mind here, big context, big picture, is that this is David writing this. And so there's a sense where God is talking to David, and David is, is writing this, um, uh, recording this, but he, he's a, a player in this as well. So he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the na uh, nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So in my mind, I look at this and we have two things. We have um, authority has been given to David. Um, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Because when you look at something like this, it, there's different words that you can use to describe it, but there's a near and far fulfillment. So this psalm is talking immediately about David, placing King David as God's anointed on, on the throne in Israel. But it's also talking about there's this future thing, a future fulfillment that's an ultimate fulfillment in the Messiah, which, of course, is going to be Christ. One of the ways that you can think about it um, is, you know, David is also the Lord's anointed. Saul was the Lord's anointed. And that word means Messiah. And so um, I often think about it as there are all these little, little M messiahs, in the Old Testament, including, by the way, uh, who was the pagan Messiah? Anybody remember? You know there was a pagan Messiah? Cyrus, Cyrus exactly, King Cyrus. Because God, God referred to him as my anointed. He referred to him as, as Messiah. Why? Because the Lord prepared him. That's what anoint means. Prepared him to do something. Okay. Now, it doesn't mean he's Jesus. It means that God anointed him or prepared him for him to do something. Jesus is the ultimate Messiah. So he's the capital M Messiah. Okay? All right. Um, so the, the first one is authority, giving authority to his anointed. The second one is, you can see where, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of earth your possession. Um, you, you shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So there's power there as well. So God is, is giving David and ultimately giving, you know, in the future, the Messiah, authority and power. Okay? So now if we go from Psalm 2 and we look at the New Testament, we go to the book of Acts. We're in 13... Thirteen, verse thirty-three. Let's see. Kind of jump in the middle here. We're going to back up to, I guess, ninety. I'm sorry, twenty-nine. So Acts chapter thirteen, verse twenty-nine. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a in a tomb. So clearly, this is the disciples taking Jesus down from the cross and laying him in the tomb. 
But God raised him, that is Jesus, from the dead, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now uh, his witnesses to the people. And we bring, bring you the good news uh, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you uh, the holy and sure blessings of, of David. So what happens is um, Luke is taking this passage from Psalm 2, from the Psalms, and now he's applying it to, to Jesus, which he, he should. That's, um, that's who, Jesus was, uh, that's who that, that Psalm was ultimately talking about in the future, Okay. But notice the context here. You know, it's not talking about the birth of Jesus. It's not talking about the creation of Jesus. What's it talking about? Resurrection. When he what? Received authority and power. Okay. Now, he had authority and power prior to that. But this is all of a sudden is the ultimate um, authority and power in the, both the heavens and the earth. Okay. So there, there was some... I guess expansion, for, for, for lack of a better word, of his, of his power. So he was given that by God, and then, then Jesus would become the only mediator by which his, his, by, by which his creation would interact with, with the creator. Okay? So this idea of um, today I've begotten you doesn't deal with the beginning of Jesus, the birth or the creation of Jesus. It deals with his receiving the power and authority. Now, following Sharon's lead, let's flip over to the book of Hebrews. So in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, um, we'll, you know I love Hebrews, so we're just going to start with verse 1. Um, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Again, we're talking resurrection and sitting down on the throne where his authority is, right? Uh, Or is a representation of his authority. Um, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the uh, right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be to me a son. So again, looking back at Psalm 2, begotten, but it's not in the context of Jesus being created. It's in the context of Jesus uh, receiving authority. And then finally, chapter 5, verse 5. This is very similar, but instead of kingship, it's talking about priesthood. And so um, Hebrews 5.5 5 says, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says in another place, you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, just like um, Sharon said a few minutes ago. So here we have the idea of begotten. Uh, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Where Arius takes it and says, well, this means that Jesus was created, 
But if you actually read the Bible and you study what that, the context of what that word is saying, then it doesn't mean begotten, it doesn't mean created at all. It actually, or born, or offspring of any sort, it means inheriting the authority and the power from God himself. Okay? So that's where when you, when you have a heresy, go back to your Bible, look at context, look at what it's saying, take in the full witness of Scripture, and you'll crush heresy every time. Okay? You won't necessarily understand everything because there are some, some mystery here. You know, how can Jesus be both God and human fully, both at the same time? Okay? Nobody knows. Um, and then the firstborn of creation, let me go ahead and um, touch on that too. So the idea was in, in, Old Testament, in the Old Testament, um, in Hebrew society, um, it, the, the, the family structure was ruled by the patriarch, okay? And then the, generally as the, the oldest son would be the, the firstborn of that family. So the patriarch was responsible for, um, you know, he was the authority, but he was also responsible for feeding and protection um, of, of everybody that was in his kind of extended family, and when one of his daughters would get married, then she would go and she would be a part of that other patriarchal sort of organization or family, I guess you could say, right? So the firstborn comes along and he inherits um, what he gets a, in terms of blessing, what does he get? Double blessing, okay? Now, is the idea that, well, the firstborn is... Um, better than everybody else, or the firstborn is God's favorite or the father's favorite or anything like that. No. The reason the firstborn gets a double blessing is because the firstborn has responsibilities of protection of the people in his family. And when the patriarch dies, he's going to be the new patriarch. And so he has, um, again, responsibilities of protection and well-being and things of that nature. Okay, so when you think about firstborn in the way the Old, Old Testament Jews, the ancient Jews would have thought about it, and then you apply it to Colossians 1, was it 17, then the idea of Jesus being the firstborn of all creation means that he's the head of all of creation. He's the one that is responsible for kind of the well-being of all of creation. And quite honestly, I think that's a very beautiful thing. You know, it's one more kind of role or motif that Jesus fills um, from, from the Bible. Cool. Um, any questions on any of that? I don't like lecturing that long. I like asking questions in between. Okay, we good? Cool. Um, so let's go back. I'm going to ask you guys a question. So if you're um, asleep, Danny, then wake up. Um, Taking the face value, is there anything admirable about Arius's concerns? What was his concern? It was understanding, but what was his other concern about the, the oneness of God, right? And, and there, to an extent, taken, again, taking at face value, there's something to be a little bit admired about somebody who's, who's very zealous for maintaining the oneness of God, because that's a very important thing. The problem is, just like all good intentions, which I'm not saying Arius had good intentions, um, I, 
I don't know his heart. Um, but you can always take things too far. You can take any particular doctrine or any particular part of any particular doctrine and always take it too far for what, what we, we think are good reasons. Okay? Um, yeah, I'll, mo I'll move on. I had uh, stories about that, but I think we need to keep trucking. So, Arius had a dispute in the middle of all this. Arius had a dispute with Alexander of Alexandria. Um, Alex, has a, he, his friends call him Alex. Um, Alex examined Arius' teaching and found that there was a difference in the essence between the Father and the Son. The Son was neither God nor man. He was something in between. He held to a strong subordinationism. What's subordinationism? The Father is over and above the Son. Father is over and above the Son in every way, right? And then Christ was a created being. There was a time when he was not, okay? So Arius' views were recorded in pithy rhyme, uh, pithy rhyming style, which caused them to become very popular. Um, that's one of the reasons why music is so important. Not only because, you know, that is a, a legitimate way to, not the only way, but a legitimate way to, to worship God, uh, a normative way to, to worship God, but also because uh, music has a way of taking facts or counterfacts and putting them in our heart and helping us to, or whether it's helping, it could be to our detriment, but it helps us to internalize them. And so when you hear something and it's kind of a catchy rhyme, you remember it and you're more likely to actually believe it. And so Arius, that's one of the things that he did. He put together these little jingles um, that that were parts of his doctrine, and they went out all over the place like wildfire. And so Arius became part of, part, that's part of the reason why Arius' views were, were so popular. And then Emperor Constantine decided that something needed to be done because people were beginning to, you know, there was uh, arm wrestling basically going on. There was uh, upheaval in the empire over this. So Emperor, Emperor Constantine decided that something needed to be done. He called the Council of Nicaea to look into the problem at, in 325 AD. His primary motive was probably not theological, but to keep the peace in the empire. So 318 bishops from all over the Mediterranean basin attended. They met for about one month, beginning on May 20th, 325 AD. Athanasius, who's, have you all heard of Athanasius? He's one of the heroes of the faith. He, uh, he stood up this area, even after Nicaea, the Arian controversy went on for a very long time. And Athanasius was just an ardent defender of Trinitarianism. And so um, he was actually exiled five times, went into exile. He had people, you know, assassins trying to kill him, all sorts of different things. Um, so anyway, his story is, is absolutely amazing. Uh, but at this point in Nicaea, he was actually uh, the secretary of Alexander. So the key dispute revolved around the term homo usias. Who's heard of homo usias? Yeah? What does it mean? What's that? 
same essence, homo meaning same, and then usias meaning, meaning essence. Now, what does that mean? What's an essence? You want to answer that one? Being a, a substance, it's, it's a, a state of existing. It's a, a state of existing, it's a being, it's, it's intrinsic nature, right? Um, and so God is of the essence God. Human beings are of the essence human beings, <laughs> you know? Um, a rock is of the essence of, of being a rock. Um, and so the key dispute revolved around the term homo usias, so is the father and the son of the same essence, meaning are, is more or less is the, is the son fully divine, is really what, what it means. Or are they hetero usias, which is different essences. Or homoi usias, which is similar essences, which is still different, right? And so if you... <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. Uh, <laughs> so if you look at homo usias, and you look at the two O's there, if you insert an I in between, uh, it would be hom homoi usias, which means similar essences. Okay? But in reality, if you're similar, you're still not the same. You're still different. And so like wars would be fought over an I. Or, an, or actually in Greek, it would be an iota. So it had nothing to do with the canon of Scripture. Now, why do I say that? Anybody have any idea? Good. A lot of people like to think that Nicaea settled more issues than it did, and right. they claim that the canon, canonicity of the New Testament goes back to Nicaea. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so I, I remember in 2004, 2000, probably 2005, I read the book, The Da Vinci Code. Anybody read The Da Vinci Code? No? Terrible. Um, it, it's, a, it's an okay sort of little detective novel-y thingy, but in the beginning of the book, Dan Brown, the author, put a short little a page with one little um, paragraph, not even a paragraph, a sentence, that said, um, you know, this is a work of fiction, but all of the historical um, claims, it's architecture, you know, different things like that, um, are in fact historical events. They're, they're true. And then he went on to um, say that Jesus' deity was created whole cloth in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, and that also Constantine decided that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were the only four Gospels that were going to be in the New Testament, and there was a whole bunch of other ones that he just kind of threw out. So you have all of these quote-unquote lost Gospels. Well, they didn't even talk about the canon at, at Nicaea. And so it, it turns out Dan Brown is an absolutely historic, uh, um, historical. Um, he is a horrible historian of historic proportions, I guess you could say. Okay. Um, and, and, and what's amazing is how many people I've talked to that echo what Dan Brown said in the Da Vinci Code, and then I had a friend that actually had a professor at a college say this very same thing, that, that, that Constantine at Nicaea threw out all the other Gospels. And I'm like, that is just a travesty 
that you know a professor gets their um, knowledge, I guess, from a, a, a poor fiction writer. So anyway, sorry, moving on. So it had nothing to do with canon of scripture. So ultimately, homoousios was included in Council of Nicaea, and there were only, um, I'm sorry, in the Nicene Creed, and only two delegates did not sign the creed out of 318. Okay, so it wasn't like it was, uh, you know, 168 to 150 or anything like that. It was, it was a landslide. So that's the Council of Nicaea. A few years later, um, about 50 years later. In 381, the Council, Council of Constantinople affirmed the findings of Nicaea, but twe tweaks were made in order to strengthen the language concerning the Holy Spirit. And this is the version that we have today. So if you go and look at the Nicene Creed, you're actually going to read the, it's called the Nicene Constantinopolian <laughs> Creed. And it's, I'm not going to put it up here, but it's, it's well worth reading. So we were talking about the Arians. So who are today's Arians? Uh, they would be, the oneness Pentecostals would actually be modalists. There you go, Jehovah's Witnesses. They believe that um, Jesus at his baptism was adopted, received power from, um, from God. And what do they believe about the Holy Spirit? He's an impersonal force, like electricity. So they, they strip away all three, well, two of the three parts of the Trinity. Right. Any questions? Modernism. Tell me about that. Okay. 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 So it's influenced from his original. He had to understand. Yeah. So. If they can't understand it, then they deny it. Whatever yep. happened. Okay. Okay. Good. That's a good observation. The whole idea of um, if human beings can't understand it, then it can't be true. Um, there's actually a scientific um, principle that I think I think has the same fallacy, um, but we won't talk about that here. If you're interested, let me know. Something to do with a cat in the box, but that's all I'll say. So anyway, a new round of heresies. Uh, the most basic orthodox understanding of the Trinity has not changed since this Nicene-Constantinople creed. But while both the humanity of, and deity of Jesus had been clearly affirmed, questions arose concerning the relationship between the two natures and how two natures exist in one person. So... Um, Again, people starting to peek into the, the mystery and, and determine how, how the two natures can, can work together, how they both can be true. And how is a, is a dangerous question to ask sometimes. Sometimes it's healthy, sometimes it's, sometimes it's not. So the first class of heresy um, that we'll talk about is called Apollinarianism. Don't you guys love these words? Apollinarianism. That's like eight. That's got to be worth 50 cents, you know. 
Apollinarianism, fourth century. So Apollinarianism, uh, conventional thinking was that man was made of body and soul, which is the emotions, and spirit, which is the mind and the will. Apollinarius was cool. That's actually a very theological term there. Apollinarius was cool with the first two, but said that Jesus had a divine spirit. Think about that for a minute. So he's got a, he's got a human body, and he's got a human um, emotions, but he's got a divine mind and will, a divine will. Okay. So what could be the motive for thinking something like that? Where does sin originate? What part of what part of us? The will, right? So what Apollinarius was doing was saying if Jesus had a human will, then that means that he would have sinned because all humans sin. That is scriptural, right? And so Apollinarius was he was trying to preserve the idea that Christ never sinned. And so what he did was he went into the mystery of the, of, of the person of Christ and said, okay, this, this must be how the human and divine natures work together. Um, but he ran into other problems. So what's the problem with thinking like this? There you go, not fully human. So think of Mickey Mouse at Disney World. Had to work in the Disney World reference, right? Mickey may have uh, the outer shell of a mouse, but his mind is totally human. So when the dude puts on a costume, or the person puts on a costume, uh, the big, big mouse ears and all of that, the outer shell is Mickey Mouse, but inside it's a, it's a human being. And it's kind of a novel way of thinking about Apollinarianism. So you've got this divine outer shell um, I guess that'd be the opposite. It'd be a human outer shell with this, you know, kind of divine, divine center. So Jesus would not have been a true man if this were the case. So he couldn't have been our representative. So besides, our minds need salvation just as our bodies do. So Gregory of Nazianzus, which is one of a, another one of the heroes of the faith. He said, if anyone has put his trust in him, that is Christ, as a man without a human mind, he has really lost his mind and is completely unworthy of salvation. For that which he, Christ, has not assumed, he has not healed. But that which is united to his deity is also saved. So his humanity is united to his deity, and so that was saved. In other words, if Christ took on only part of human nature in his incarnation, he could only save that part, but the entirety of human nature fell in Adam, fell in Adam. Thus, salvation of the entire person is necessary. This leads to a need for the Savior to be fully human. By holding forth a Savior who is only partially human, lacking a human soul with its mind and will, Apollinarianism offered a salvation that was also partial. So then the Storianism. Historianism kind of has the opposite problem. Historius opposed use of the term theotakos, that is, bearer of God, in reference to Mary. So the idea there is that Mary um, was, being, was being called 
Theotokos. Theotokos means God-bearer. And he was objecting to that, right? He said that she gave birth to a man, not God. And so the two natures are not truly unified. Okay? Now look, Nestorius holds a little bit of a warm place in my heart for a couple of reasons. One is um, he was attacked, but we, nobody really thinks that he believed what he was being attacked for. Um, we're going to talk about Cyril of Alexandria here in a second. We think Cyril kind of exaggerated a lot of Nestorius's claims. But the other one is, you know, if we talk to our Catholic friends and they raise Mary to a, an unhealthy level, to a blasphemous level, to be quite honest, um, then, you know, when we hear people talking about Mary, it's, it's easy to put up those, those shields or those, you know. So the idea is they didn't have the full-on doctrine of Mary like they do today. But people were talking about Mary being the God-bearer. And he's like, no, she, he bore a man. Or I'm sorry, she bore a man. She not, didn't bear God. She's not the mother of God, is what he was saying. So an analogy would be two people inside a horse costume. So I know it's another dumb analogy, but um, so you have two people. They're not really united. They just seem to be united, right, in this, this outer shell. And so what's the problem with this? Go ahead. What's that? 200%. Got that Jesus isn't isn't one person, it's two persons. Okay, good. Instead of being 100%. So, yeah, so, yeah, so Jesus is, is like two completely independent, not unified. He's schizophrenic. Yeah, schizophrenic, okay. Uh, good, good. And, and, and because of that, there's no, uni, there's no uni, nothing unifying the divine and the human. And so that you, get, you begin to have problems with uh, salvation there as well. So there's a, still a chasm between God and man, which is the problem that Jesus solved, right? Is bridging the chasm between God and man. So Cyril of Alexandria um, attacked um, two tenets of Nestorianism. They're alleged tenets. We don't really know that the guy actually believed this. But uh, Jesus is composed of two distinct and independent persons who work in conjunction with each other, and that a true union of deny, divine and human, the true union of divine and human, would have involved God in change and suffering, which is impossible. So what it means there is, you know, we say God is unchangeable, right? And that God did not suffer. But what? Um, uh, so the true union of divine and human would have involved um, God in change and suffering, which is, well, yeah, I think that makes sense. So it also would have made it impossible for Jesus Christ as man to experience true human existence. Both of these ideas were condemned at the Council of Ephesus in 431 and again the Council in 451. So the last one, Eutychianism. Isn't that a great word, Eutychianism? Oh, I've got Cyril of Alexandria up there, but that should say Eutyches. Eutyches, early 5th century, said that Jesus' divine nature absorbed his human nature. This is a form of monophysitism, which means one nature. 
an analogy would be a drop of ink dissolving into an ocean. Okay. Uh, it, what religion does that remind you of? One being, one person being dissolved into... What's that? Buddhism, uh, Hinduism, right? That's the idea of when you reach nirvana in, in Hinduism, uh, you lose your identity. You become a part of the bigger whole, right? And so um, it kind of reminds me of that. Eutychianism kind of reminds me of that. So it's like a drop of ink dissolving in the ocean. So what's the problem? Clearly, um, he wouldn't have been fully human. So the fourth ecumenical, what is ecumenical? Sorry, ecumenical, what does that mean? All together. So all the churches came together and held a council. Um, the first being um, Nicaea, and then Ephesus, and then Constantinople, and now um, Chalcedon. So um, four good councils. Uh, the fourth ecumenical council, Chalcedon, was convened in 451 AD and composed a new statement of faith, the Chalcedonian Creed, where Nicaea was more about the Trinity. The Chalcedonian Creed was more about the person of Christ. It embraced the two-nature, one-person formula, which became the standard way of expressing the hypostatic union. What does hypostatic union mean? Go ahead. Christ as both God and man. The hypo meaning under, static meaning to stand, so standing yeah. under this one formula of God being in human form. How do we talk about it? Good. Does everybody hear that? Yeah, okay. It's the union of the two natures of Christ and the union of divine and human natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. It explicitly denied the three earlier heresies, Arianism, Polinarianism, and Nestorianism. All right, so... What I'll do here um, is talk about, um, you know, the Trinity, we had three biblical principles of the Trinity. And I, I did this actually earlier, probably, I don't know, three months ago. Uh, but what we're going to do is go through the four biblical principles of the person of Christ. Okay? Now, in, in doing so, there is a... Um, like a symbol, like a little drawing that can help you remember what those, those principles are, okay? So what we'll do is go through one at a time and um, look at the, build the symbol as we go. So H, the principle there is, is Jesus is fully human. Okay, simple enough. D, Jesus is fully divine, okay? The line between them is that the two natures of Christ are um, distinct and um, unconfused. Okay? Now, I'm going to use, I use the word distinct, not separate. Can anybody tell me what the difference is between distinct and separate? If I, I I've used this analogy before, but if I, distinguish between Stuart's head and his body, everything's fine, right? It makes sense. But if I separate Stuart's head from his body, 
then I'm going to jail. Okay? So kind of separate does violence. It separates. Distinct just means that you're, distinguishes, you're distinguishing between them. Okay? So there's a distinction between his humanity and his deity, but they're still, they're still kind of together. Okay? And that's what the circle means, that the, the two natures are completely uh, unified in one person. Right? So as long as you're talking about the person of Christ, and you can kind of keep this little thing in mind, then you, um, you're, you're probably in pretty good territory. If in any statement that you have to say about the person of Christ, then you need to keep these two in mind. So if we look at docetism and Apollinarianism, two of them that we talked about, um, they deny the humanity of Christ. Okay? Ebionism and adoptionism deny the deity of Christ. Eutychianism um, denies the distinction between the humanity and the deity. And then Nestorianism denies the, the um, unification of the two. Okay? And so there we have the, the symbol. And then one last little thing, and I know you guys have seen this before, so please don't roll your eyes. Right? Or I'm going to turn around. You can roll, roll, roll your eyes at, um, when my back is turned. Who's seen this before? Yeah, a bunch of hands going up. But you're not. Have you seen this? No? Okay. So when we talk about the dual natures of Christ, and we talk about the Trinity, we talk about concepts that... Um, seem to be opposed to one another. Well, we'll, do, we'll just go with, with Christ, okay? So when we think about the dual natures of Christ, we tend to think about it on a line, okay, or I guess a line segment. And so on the left side, we have, you know, all human, no divine. And then on the right, we have all divine, no human, as you can see. So if I were to say, okay, um, Stephen, where would Stephen be on this line? Then what would you say? all the way on the left, right? God the Father would be all the way on the right, okay? Where would Jesus be? Yeah, right, okay. So would he be in the middle? It would be 50-50, right? Well, so what's, what's yeah, and I've heard, it's funny, every time I've taught this, I've heard he would be the line, yeah. True, in a sense. Um, so, who would be in the middle? I heard somebody. The, like Hercules and Percy Jackson, mythical characters, right? 50-50, okay? Or I'm sure there's heresies out there that would probably, I don't know, Arianism might even put him there, I don't know. All right, so what we have to do is clearly we have to think about this in a different way. And the, the first thing we have to think about is Humanity and divinity are not opposites. Okay? It doesn't mean that if you're one, you can't be the other in Jesus' case, right? So what we can do is look at it this way. Okay? So going from left to right, you have humanity, starting with no human on one, one end on the left, fully human on, on the right. Going up and down, you have no divinity at all on the bottom, 
then divinity on the top. Does that make sense? Okay, so, again, where is Stuart? Where would Stuart be? Not where's Waldo, where's Stuart? Lower right, that's where you and I are. Okay, how about God the Father? Upper left, okay. So how about Percy Jackson and, and Hercules? Right in the middle, okay. So now where would Jesus be? Okay, up here. So personally, I found this helpful in not explaining the mystery, but just kind of, I don't know, putting the, the mystery in a little bit, little bit of context, right? Because the thing we have to remember anytime we're talking about the Trinity or the, person of, the dual natures of Christ, the hypostatic union, we have to remember that God is far above us, that we can't comprehend him. We can, we can have knowledge of him, but we can't have exhaustive knowledge of him. We can't fully comprehend him. His, his ways are not our ways, okay? And so when, and when we think about him, we have to think in different ways. And I think things like this can be helpful to help us understand a little bit, but ultimately we're not going to be able to wrap our minds around it. Calvin had a, an expression. He said, um, you cannot contain... The, inf- uh, the infinite within the finite. Or maybe I got that bad. You, the finite cannot contain the infinite. So in other words, a human mind cannot fully comprehend the, what, who and what God is fully. Okay? And so we have to be able to let, we have to allow mysteries to be mysteries because if we go too far, then we introduce heresy. Okay? Um, any questions? Thoughts? No? Okay. Yes? Um, subordinationism, that would be kind of a Trinitarian thing. Are you thinking eternal subordinationism? Or just... Yeah, yeah. I'm not debating that whether he's God yeah, yeah, or not, but yeah. I mean, there's clear language that yeah. talks about him, you know, being, you know, the the culmination of all things. Will okay. Happen, you know, where he's above all, except for the Father, right? Right, he's right. Subordinate to him, except right, except God the Father. So, okay. I mean, that's a little. A little okay. Let me. I, we got a couple of minutes. Um, actually, we'll take a couple of minutes, even if we don't have them. Um, that's a good question. So we're talking about. And, and I'm not going to be able to fully answer it, but we'll give it a whirl, right? So the relationship between the Father and the Son in terms of one being subordinate to the other, okay? What we have to do is think about it in two different ways. There is the being of God, okay? Um, what the philosophers would call ontology um, or ontological trinity, okay? Okay? So it's the being of God, and that's who God is and what God is and who Jesus is and what Jesus is, okay? In that regard, they are equal. In in fact, they're the same, okay? But then there's functions of being, okay? And so when you have the functions of being, then Jesus is functionally subordinate 
to the Father. But he's not... What's that? You, you, could say, you could say that. You could say that, right? So if you think about, and we talked about this a little bit a few months ago, but if you think about a husband and a wife, you know, and you ask the question, which one is more in the image of God than the other? They're both fully, you know, we're both in the image of God. Men and women are neither one more in the image of God than the other. In, in fact, there's some connection between the two that... that um, expresses the image of God. But in a household, the husband has, the, has authority over the wife. That doesn't mean he's of a higher being. It doesn't mean that he's, um, you know, more in the image of God or more spiritual or anything like that. It just means that he, that's the role that he has as he's been, that he's been given, is that he is um, one of authority. There's authority, then there's helper. Does that make sense? So we have to think about it in two different ways. And one of the problems that we run into, like in that specific example, is people say that, or a lot of people think that if you have a, um, if you're subordinate or if you're a helper, then somehow your being or your importance is less than the other. And that, that's just not the case, okay? Um, so in that, Jesus submits to the Father, but that doesn't mean he's less divine. It just means that um, in the arrangement that they made in eternity, that the Son was going to become incarnate and um, save humanity, basically. Does it clarify or mix anything up? Right, yeah. How does God, Jesus know when he's going to return? Or yeah. I mean, he's God, right? He yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, let's close in prayer. No, <laughs> that, that's a great question. Honestly, I don't have a good answer, but I'll, 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 I'll pee. I will have one next week. You would think that that would be one that I would have, right? Um, cool. Any other questions? I, I love it. Good questions. Keep them coming. Yes, ma'am. Well, all authority has been given to him. Oh, that's right. Yeah. He's already, okay. Yeah, yeah. That okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> okay, good. Uh, Stuart, or Stephen, do you mind? Father, we love you and praise you. Thank you for uh, time to come together and consider who you are. Uh, I ask that you would continue to stir in us a desire to know, a desire to learn. Uh, please keep using this church and these elders to... Help us uh, sort through these big questions and always, Lord, I ask that you keep us hum humble in our pursuit of knowing an eternal God as finite beings. Make us love you. Make us trust you even when we don't understand. Uh, for the rest of the service, as we turn to a time of worship together and fellowship, I ask that you would make us grow closer to each other, love each other, uh, and seek to follow you throughout the week vivified today. Always, Lord, I ask that your will would be done above all else. And it's in your son's name we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.